0: testament book of matthew the first book in the new testament matthew chapter 24 if you're using a pew bible you'll find it on page 1054 if you're a guest with us, we've been studying through the gospel of matthew and we've come to one of the most famous sections in the gospel of matthew matthew chapter 24 And I'll speak for a few minutes today on this subject, a preview of coming attractions. Matthew chapter 24, we'll begin reading in verse 1, and this is what the Word of God says. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age?" My favorite aspect of going to the movies, besides the popcorn, is watching the previews. I do not want to skip them, I do not want to arrive late, and I do not want to fall asleep and miss them. The previews of coming attractions are important. After all, they advertise an upcoming feature that you just have to see and don't want to overlook. And as we turn our attention to Matthew chapter 24 and Matthew chapter 25, we come to Jesus' version of a preview of coming attractions. Jesus' message in Matthew chapter 24 and Matthew chapter 25 is commonly known as the Olivet Discourse, so named because it was delivered to His disciples on the Mount of Olives. And the theme of this discourse is Christ's second coming at the end of the age to establish his millennial kingdom and reign. Now, his message in these chapters was prompted by the disciples' question that we just read in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 3, where they asked. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And the answer that Jesus gave to their questions is the longest answer given to any question asked in the New Testament. And its truths are absolutely essential for understanding his return and the amazing events that are associated with it. It is the revelation of Christ. Directly from his own lips about his return to the earth in glory and in power. Now the Olivet Discourse can be divided into two parts. The Lord's end-time prophecies in Matthew chapter 24. And the Lord's end-time parables in Matthew chapter 25. The prophecy deals with the course of this age... And the parables deal with the climax of the age. The prophecy is concerned with God's judicial dealings with man. And the parables deal with God's judgmental dealings with man. And both the prophecy and the parables are concerned with the last days and how they impact the Jews, the Gentile nations, and the church. And friends, as we read this astonishing prophecy of Jesus we discover that the future he predicts is nothing more or less than the unfolding of events from trends that are already taking place in the world around us. In other words, the future that Jesus describes in these chapters has already begun. And even as we read these words, we are living out the prophecy that the Lord Jesus outlined for us on that mountainside shortly before he went to the cross. And as we study the Olivet Discourse, we will not only have a deeper understanding of the future, we will have a more complete understanding of all that is taking place in the world around us today. Now these two chapters are much debated And frequently misunderstood. Largely in part because they are interpreted through one's particular lens or theological system. Rather than taking and interpreting Jesus' words on their own merit. And we need to remember that the disciples who asked this question were not educated, learned men. And Jesus' answers were to give them clarity, not anxiety and confusion. And so it's best to interpret Jesus' words as simply and straightforwardly as possible and not through the lens of some theological system. Now, fewer than 50 days after he gave his sermon in these two chapters, Jesus ascended to heaven from the very mountain which he taught This prophecy and one day soon the Bible says he will return to earth on that same mountain. And until then he has given us a preview of the coming attractions that this sin cursed world will face. Would you notice with me first of all in verse number one this morning. The setting of the prophecy. Jesus says or Matthew says Jesus left the temple and was going away, and when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Now Jesus, if you'll recall, had spent all day Wednesday of Passover week in the temple, giving his last public teaching and pronouncing his final and most intense judgment on the false religious leaders and on the nation of Israel. And now, here in verse number 1, Matthew tells us that Jesus left the temple and that he was headed toward the Mount of Olives. And his movements remind us of what the prophet Ezekiel wrote in Ezekiel chapter 11 in verse 23 when he said, And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. And what we need to understand from verse number 1 is that when Jesus departed from the temple, he left the temple just as he said he would in verse 38 of chapter 23 Desolate. And with this geographical move, the presence and the power and the protective grace of God left with Jesus. Jesus left the very place where he should have been received. And as Jesus had just declared to the religious leaders and the people of his day, they would not see him again until they said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Matthew says that as Jesus was going away from the temple, his disciples came to him to point out to him the buildings of the temple. And when you see that phrase in verse 1, point out in the ESV, it could literally be translated, show off. The disciples came to Jesus to show off the extravagance and the buildings of the temple complex. But you'll notice in verse 1 that Matthew doesn't tell us why the disciples were so fascinated with the buildings of the temple. But when you look at the parallel accounts in the Gospel of Mark... And in the Gospel of Luke, concerning this scene, Mark and Luke help us understand what may have been going through the disciples' minds as they were pointing out to Jesus the buildings of the temple. For instance, in Mark chapter 13, and verse 1, this is what Mark records, and as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful building!" And in Luke chapter 21, in verse 5, Luke records, and while some were speaking of this temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. The disciples were troubled. They were confused. They could not understand how such an amazing building, especially one that was dedicated to the glory of God, could be left desolate as Jesus predicted. After all, the temple was the focal point of the nation's life, and the disciples were struggling to understand why God would allow judgment and harm to come to this temple. The disciples regarded it with holy awe, the very dwelling place of where God met among his people. And in their minds, rather than being desolate, the disciples were trying to point out to Jesus the magnificence Of the building, its grandeur, its large stones covered in gold, its beautiful masonry and artistry. It was the glory of Jerusalem. How could Jesus condemn it and bring judgment on it and say it was desolate? And in spite of their confusion, Jesus' departure from the temple was a clear sign that God's judgment was coming upon the religious leaders, and the people. Jesus had spent days leading up to the cross focused on the temple and the corruption that was taking place there. You'll remember, he said that the temple had become a place of financial greed. It had become a place where false religion and hypocrisy abounded and where widows were being robbed and exploited. God's people had made a mockery out of what God had designed to point them to himself, and Jesus had had enough. And this is the setting of his prophecy. We not only see the setting of the prophecy in verse number 2, we see the stunning statement of the prophecy. And Matthew says, But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. The disciples followed Jesus from the temple area down through the valley toward the Kidron Brook, crossed over and climbed up the Mount of Olives. And from their vantage point on the Mount of Olives, Jesus and his disciples could see a clear, staggering view of the temple complex. And it's here where Jesus gave his answer to the disciples' questions. And he used words of a prophet. And you'll notice in verse 2, he predicted the complete annihilation of everything that was captivating the disciples' attention, namely the buildings of the temple. The one who was greater than the temple prophesied that the temple would be irreversibly decimated and rendered out of order. And Jesus, friends, had already made this prediction. You'll recall in Matthew 23 and verse 38, He said to them in a final word of judgment, See, your house is left to you desolate, decimated, destroyed. And on the day of His triumphal entry into Jerusalem... Luke records that Jesus also spoke of this destruction. And in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 to 44, Luke records this. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you. And surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. And do you hear Jesus' words in that passage in Luke? Not one stone left upon another, the very thing he predicted here in verse number two. And as history tells us, less than 40 years after this stunning statement from the lips of Jesus in 70 A.D., the Romans destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. And the first century historian Josephus gave a detailed record of how this took place. And if you recall Jesus' words in Luke 19 that I just read to you, you will find familiarity in Josephus' account of history. He says responding to a Jewish insurgency throughout Judea, the Roman general Titus built large wooden scaffolds around the walls of the temple buildings, a tactic never before used. And he piled the scaffolds high with wood and other flammable items and set them on fire. And the intense heat weakened the temple structure, and the Romans were able to dislodge the giant stones, prying them off one by one and casting them into the valley below. And afterwards, soldiers sifted through the rubble left on the temple site to retrieve any gold that had melted into the ruins. All that remained on the site was flattened down to the retaining walls, just as Jesus had predicted." The temple may have been a magnificent building. It may have been a sight to behold with the eye. But once it no longer fulfilled the purposes for which God created it, it was destroyed. It was only fit for destruction. And this stunning prophecy from the lips of Jesus is a prelude to all of the prophetic statements that he will make in the rest of this chapter and in chapter 25 through the parables. Now, friends, Jesus' prophecy reminds us that the things of this world, even the most magnificent, are fleeting. That's why in his first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this in Matthew 6:19 to 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This passage, this stunning statement of prophecy from the lips of Jesus forces us to ask ourselves this question. Where are we laying up our treasures? Is it on earth? Or is it in heaven? This text reminds us that it is quite possible for you and I to be living for the wrong world. That it is highly plausible to be rich towards ourselves, and not rich towards others, and not rich towards God. That it is extremely probable to provide for your family everything they need for earth, and then some, and not prepare your family for eternity. And it begs the question of all of us this morning, are we living for what's fleeting, or are we living for what will never fade away? Are we laying up for ourselves treasures on earth as Jesus shows us through this statement of prophecy prophecy that will come to an end one day? Or are we laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven that will last for all eternity? And I'll remind you what Jesus said about this, friends. Wherever you're laying your treasures, your heart will follow. And if you're living for this world, if you're living for the earth, your heart is captivated with this world. If you're living for eternity, if you're living for something that will outlive you and outlast you, your heart will be fixated there. And it may just be that the reason why you're not thinking of heaven and longing for heaven as much as you would like It's because your heart's not fixed there. It's fixed here. And this statement of prophecy from Jesus' lips reorients our lives. What are we living for? All of the trophies of this life, they're all going to fade away. They're all going to be decimated. They're all going to be destroyed. You read the passage with me from 2 Peter. It's all going to burn up. You don't have to worry about global warming. It's going to happen. All of it's going to burn. We not only see the setting of the prophecy and the stunning statement of the prophecy, we also see the scope of the prophecy in verse number 3. Matthew says, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us. When will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus' prophetic statement in verse number 2 sent shockwaves through the ranks of the disciples. And notice what Matthew says. Matthew says that as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Mark, in his account, identifies the disciples as Peter, James, John, John. And Andrew. And in response to Jesus' prophetic statement of verse number two, Matthew says in verse number three that the disciples asked him two questions. Do you see it? When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, the scope of the disciples' questions revealed that the destruction of the temple was such a significant event in their minds that for them, they believed that it had to be connected to Jesus' coming in the end of the age. Do you see the questions and how they form together? When will these things be? When will the temple be destroyed? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? The disciples did not see these as two separate events. They saw them all together. And for them to say that Herod's temple, a building that took 46 years to build, would be completely leveled, only made sense in the light of the end of the age and the reign and rule of Christ as Messiah and Lord. And so they saw it all fitting together. One cataclysmic event that ushered everything else into being. But you'll notice that Jesus answers their two questions, when and what, by explaining that the coming destruction of the temple would not be the end of the age. In other words, what the disciples thought to be one event, Jesus teaches throughout Matthew chapter 24 are two events that there would there would be a judgment placed upon the Jewish people and upon the temple and as I've already shown you that judgment would take place in 70 AD at the hands of the Romans but there would be a second judgment a final worldwide judgment over all the earth when Christ returned at the end of the age now you got to put your thinking cap on with me for a minute Because I'm going to give you a little background and understanding of how to correctly think about this passage of Scripture as we move forward. When it comes to understanding the teachings of Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25, there are three main approaches. Here's the first one. Preterism. P-R-T-E-R-I-S-M. And those who hold to this view believe that this passage says nothing about the return of Christ or the events of the last days. Those who hold this view believe that everything that Jesus says in Matthew 24 and everything that he says in Matthew 25 relates solely to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. And friends, there are prominent theologians who hold to that view And in my humble opinion, they're wrong. Second view. Futurism. And Those who hold to this view see most or all of this passage as relating solely to the future and specifically to end times prophecies. That Jesus is not talking about the destruction of the temple anywhere in Matthew 24 and 25. And again, There are well-known theologians and scholars who hold to this view who I deeply respect, and I think they are wrong. Then there's the third view. And the third view is called foreshortening. Foreshortening. F-O-R-E, shortening. Foreshortening. And those who hold to this view believe that this passage describes events both before and during the destruction of the temple as well as the last days before and during Jesus' return to earth to establish his millennial kingdom and the end of the age. Theologian George Eldon Ladd defines foreshortening as the idea that events in the near future and those much further ahead are spoken of as if they are very close together. And because they have common characteristics, the closer event... The destruction of the temple symbolizes the coming event, the end of the world. And I believe that this is how you properly understand Matthew 24 and 25. That in these chapters, Jesus does prophesy and predict the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. And at the same time, he also predicts the future events that will take place surrounding his second coming and his return to earth and his establishing of the millennial kingdom. So Jesus' prophecy invites the reader to see a double fulfillment, to see the fulfillment of judgment on Jerusalem and to see a fulfillment of the final judgment at the end of the age. Now, to correctly interpret Matthew 24, we must discern where Jesus stops answering the first question and starts answering the second question. The first question, dealing with the destruction of the temple. The second question, dealing with his second coming and the end of the age. And so, a somewhat helpful division that we can make of this chapter would be this. To see verses 15 to 26... And 32 to 35, speaking of the events before and during the destruction of the temple. While verses 29 to 31 and 36 to 41 speak of Christ's second coming. And verses 4 to 14, 27 to 28, and 42 to 44 speak of the time of Christ's resurrection until his return at the end of the age now the questions question number one when will these things be and to answer the question you have to ask what is these things and these things refers to jesus's prophecy of the temple destruction keep it in its context In chapter 23, Jesus ended the chapter proclaiming judgment on the temple and the false religious system of the day. At the beginning of chapter 24, Jesus leaves the temple complex as a sign of the glory of God and the power of God and the preservation of God, departing from the temple as he left. And the disciples say, how can this be? And Jesus prophesies in verse number 2, I tell you, one stone will not be left on top of another until it's all destroyed. These things has to be referring to the destruction of the temple. And in his account, Luke gives Jesus' detailed description of this event. In Luke chapter 21, verses 20 to 24, this is what Jesus says. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And according to Luke, Jesus was prophesying when these things would be. 70 A.D., the destruction of the temple in the city by Rome. It leads us to question number two. What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And when the disciples asked this question, they did not envision Jesus coming from heaven to earth. Remember, what they had in mind was a political revolution. That Jesus was going to rise up and set them free from Roman rule. That he was going to destroy the temple and he was going to usher in his rule and his reign. And that's what they were thinking when they asked this question. But Jesus refers in this chapter to his coming in a different way. He refers to it as his second coming, as his rule and his reign that was prophesied. And so when the disciples ask, what will be the sign of your coming? What they're really saying is, what will be the sign of you manifesting yourself in your permanent presence as a Messiah to set us free from Rome? And Jesus will answer and say, this is not what I'm doing. And you'll notice that the disciples put with this sign of your coming a reference to the end of the age. Because they believed that it would all take place at once when Jesus returned. Now if you look in Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse number 4, Jesus begins to answer this second question. He begins to answer what the world will look like as it approaches the time of his coming and the end of the age. And I want you to see in verses 4 through 8 the relevance of what Jesus describes and what you watch and hear in the news. Beginning in verse 4, And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. Look at the text. For this must take place. Can I just pause for a minute and get your attention on what Jesus just showed you? Until his return, there is going to be war. And there are going to be rumors of war. And the Christian, the follower of Jesus Christ, is not to be alarmed at this news. Why? Look at your Bible. This must take place. Why must it take place? Because Jesus prophesied and predicted that it would take place. And every single thing that he prophesies must be fulfilled. It must take place. So don't be alarmed by this. Why? Because the end is not yet. Now look in verse 7. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Now verse 8 is a summary. Don't miss it. You should underline it in your Bible. It is that critical to what Jesus is saying. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. It's but the beginning. In other words, if you want to understand disciples, what it's going to look like when I come again, you're going to see things like I've just described, and it's merely the beginning of what is going to happen. These are birth pains, and that language is important. You're familiar with what he's describing When a woman goes into labor, she begins to have pains. And the closer she gets to delivery, the more intense the pains become. The closer together the pains become. And Jesus is saying, if you want to see what the world is going to be like just before I return... It's going to look a little bit like this. There's going to be famines. There's going to be earthquakes. There's going to be wars. There's going to be rumors of wars. Nations are going to go against nation. There's going to be all kinds of chaos, and all of this stuff has to take place, and it's just the beginning. They're going to be like birth pains. It's going to get more intense. It's going to get closer together. You're going to be overwhelmed by it all, but do not be alarmed. This is not the end yet. That's what he's saying. The Apostle Paul used the same figure of speech and language when he discussed the return of Christ with the Thessalonian believers. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 1 through 3, this is what he said. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. And the period of history that Jesus is describing here, I believe, is found in the book of Revelation, where in Revelation chapter 6 to Revelation chapter 8, he reveals the sealed judgments that will unfold over a period of years. And then in the middle of chapter 8 through chapter 9 and in chapter 11 of the book of Revelation, he reveals the trumpet judgments that will take place over a much shorter period of time. And then in Revelation 16, he reveals the bold judgments that many believe will take place over a few days and hours. And what you see in the book of Revelation. Through the tribulation period is an increasing intensity of these birth pains leading to his second coming in the end of the age. Furthermore, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus teaches his disciples that his coming will be unmistakable. Look at verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the son of man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and glory disciples you want to not know a sign oh you ju- all you'll have to do is look up you'll see the sign it'll be unmistakable you will see me coming in great power and in great glory you know john got a vision of what that would look like when Jesus came in power and glory. And this is what he described in Revelation 1:7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Do you hear that, friends? Every eye will see Christ when he returns. It will be unmistakable. And notice how John defines it. Even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. And John saw a picture of the glory and the majesty and the power of Christ in that moment, and here's how he ended that verse. Even so, amen. Even so, let it be, Jesus. Come in that power. Come in that glory. That's what it'll be like. Disciples, you won't have to wonder if I'm coming. Everyone will know it on that day. It'll be unmistakable. And friends, I tell you this morning that just as surely as the temple was destroyed, so too Christ will return. And he will return, as the Bible says, suddenly. He will return publicly. And he will return unmistakably. And he will tell his disciples, and he will tell you and me at the end of Matthew chapter 24, that in light of of his return in power and glory, we are to stay awake in verse 42. We are to be ready in verse 44. We are to remain faithful and do the work that he has called us to do in verses 45 and 46. And we are to endure to the end in verse 13. And so I ask you this morning, every single person in this room, the sound of my voice, if Christ were to split the skies and return today, would he find you awake? Would he find you ready? Would he find you faithful? Would he find you enduring? Listen, young folks, students, kids, It's easy to hear a passage of scripture like this. It's easy to hear your pastor talk about these future things and say you're being ready. And you think, oh, I got plenty of time for that. College students, you're saying, oh, I'm in the midst of my studies. I got a career to build, a family to build, a life to build. And I just tell you, you don't know if you're going to be able to fulfill all those things based upon the word of God that I'm proclaiming to you this morning. That's why Jesus says, stay awake. Stay alert. Be ready. Be ready. Think soberly about this. Think about your life. Think about what you really love. Think about what you're really living for. Think about the direction that you're headed. Time's short. Eternity's long. Jesus is showing you what's going to take place and what you can expect. And he's challenging you to be ready for that day. Do not be caught off guard. And some of us just walk around acting like eternity's never going to happen. We're acting like we can chase death. And we can cheat it. And miss it. And Jesus is saying the exact opposite. Be alert. Stay awake. Be ready. Remain faithful. Don't deceive yourself. I'm coming again. And if he were to come today, would you be ready? Well... We see the setting of the prophecy, the stunning statement of the prophecy, the scope of the prophecy. I cannot say that word today. And the significance of the prophecy. And that's really bad because it's the main word in the sermon, right? Finally, the significance of the prophecy. Notice again the text. That the disciples ask questions about timing. They want to know when these things will be. They want to know what sign will signify the end. But when you study Matthew 24 and 25, you find that Jesus does not reply with a when. He doesn't give dates. And he doesn't reply with signs. He replies with a what and a how. He tells them what sorts of things are coming and how they should prepare for them. So that they can stand firm and stand steady to the end. And when you think about Jesus' answers in these chapters, friends, it is in keeping with his earthly ministry because Jesus was always in the habit of preparing his disciples for what was going to take place in the future. And in Mark's account of this text, Jesus issued this warning to his disciples in Mark chapter 13 and verse 23. Be on guard. I've told you these things beforehand. Do you hear that? Why did he give this prophecy? Why did he give it to his disciples? Why did he give it to you and me? So that we would be on guard. Because he's told us what's going to happen before it happens. Be on guard. He's prepared us for the future. So why are you so afraid of it? Do you not believe him? He's given you this word to prepare you. Not to scare you. In His sovereign grace, He's preparing us for the future. Additionally, not only did He prepare Him for the future, but Jesus often rebuked people in His day for not knowing about the future. Listen to Luke chapter 12, verses 54 to 56. And he also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. But why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Do you hear his rebuke? You can interpret the sky and the wind and all the different seasons. Like some of you have been predicting about what kind of winter we're going to have and how much snow and all this and that. But you haven't thought one thing about eternity in the future. And what Jesus would say is, how can you predict the winter? How can you get the farmer's almanac out and not look around the world around you and read my word and take my word and use it to understand what's going on around you and see the times? Why can't you not do that? Now I'll tell you why you can't do it. Because you're not awake. You're asleep. He's given this word to prepare you for the future, and he's rebuking you for not taking the word and seeing what's really going on around you. Moreover, Jesus took the truth of the future, and he applied it to the present. Now, you know this passage I'm getting ready to read to you. You hear it at almost every funeral. But have you ever thought about it in the context of prophecy in the future and how it relates to how you live in the present? John 14, verses 1 through 3. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Future prophecy, present promise and reality. That the prophecy of the future should give you hope, comfort, peace, strength now. That's how Jesus taught it. One author described this practical application of the truth of the future to the present this way. He said, A believer who gets out of of bed in the morning thinking my Lord Jesus could return today will probably not let sin take root in his life. But Christians who rarely, if ever, reflect on the realities of the future life, the Lord's coming, and the judgment seat of Christ are far more vulnerable to temptation and sin. And perhaps that explains something of the sin and apathy seen throughout the church today because you don't take the promise of the future and apply it to the present that's that that's the purpose all through the new testament about the prophecies i'm going to give you one more example of it this morning it's found in hebrews chapter 10 verses 24 to 25 again a famous passage of scripture you hear me refer to it often But listen to it in the context of Matthew 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. But encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And the day drawing near that he is referring to is the return of Christ and the end of the age. And the writer of Hebrews is saying as you see that day drawing closer and closer. You should pause in your life. And you should give some consideration about how you can stir your brothers and sisters in Christ up to love and to good works. You should consider how often you're gathering together as the people of God. And listen, he says you should do it all the more. You should stir up more. You should gather more. You should love one another more. You should be involved in one another's lives and helping each other persevere to the end all the while you see the day drawing near. And there are some people, clearly by their absence in this place and their inconsistent attendance in this place, who don't believe that the day is drawing near. And the prophecy of the future should impact present reality and how you're living your life. <laughs> and if you can't enjoy worship here on earth, what makes you think you're going to like heaven? If you don't like your brothers and sisters in Christ here, what makes you think you're going to be at peace there? This is a foretaste of that. Furthermore, Jesus revealed the future. Don't miss this. This may be the most important thing I say. He revealed the future so his disciples would trust him. Look at Matthew 24, verses 34 and 35. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away Until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will not pass away. Jesus staked his authority and his power on this prophecy. And he will fulfill every single word of it. And he reminds his disciples of this truth. So they will trust him, And he reminds you and I of this truth, so we will trust him with everything that is going to take place. That's why he says in Matthew 25 and verse 13, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Friends, we are to trust in Jesus, and we are to remain faithful to him to the end, no matter What happens? The Olivet Discourse was one of the ways Jesus warned his disciples, including you and me, about the end of history. And he gave us a preview of coming attractions. So we would stay alert and we would live in light of that day. And here's the question. Will you listen? Will you listen to him? Will you believe him? Will you trust him? Will you turn to him? He's coming again. Stay awake. Be ready. Remain faithful to what he's called you to do and endure. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your word. We pray by your spirit you would give us clarity and wisdom and knowledge and understanding. And that we wouldn't just try to get the theology right, but that we would actually live the theology. Help us to believe it. To practice it. Help us to slow down and consider and think how we're living. And help us, God, to trust you more. We pray today, just once more, for those hurting in this place, mm-hmm. that even this prophetic word you would use to bring comfort and healing to them. We pray today for those without Christ, that in your mercy and grace, you would open their eyes and help them to see their need to turn to Jesus before it's too late. And we pray, God, that you would help us to be a people of your word and a people of hope and a people of faith and a people of love and a people of trust. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.